Chris here. I'm jumping in before the episode starts to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. This little show has had thousands of listeners from all over the world, and I'm incredibly humbled that you would take the time to learn more about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. If you're interested in supporting the show, you have two options. First, and my recommended route, is to look into the organizations that the guests recommend. These groups are doing great work all over the world, and if you have the ability, donating your time or money will do a lot of good. Second, if you're interested in directly supporting the show, I don't have any ads, don't have a Patreon, I don't make any money from this, and nor do I want to. But I do have a memoir about my time in the Marine Corps. It's called Chasing Alexander, A Marine's Journey Across Iraq and Afghanistan. Kirkus Review says, Martin's memoir is as thoughtful as it is lucid, and is written in a deeply personal, confessional style, probing and self-effacing. If that sounds interesting to you, you can order a copy at any online retailer. And, again, my deepest thanks for listening to the show. I hope these stories have helped you understand the wars better. The United States has been at war for the last 20 years. My name is Chris, and I sit down to talk with veterans about their time fighting overseas. These are the Long War Interviews. Hi everyone, it's Chris here with the Long War Interviews. I think there are a few themes that run through this show. Going to war is obviously the biggest one. The difficulty finding community after leaving the military is another prominent one. But the theme I find most interesting is the way people open up about their character. Being in the military, and especially fighting in a war, it really strips you down to the core of your being. It burns away all of the excesses in a way that's hard to find elsewhere. I think some good examples from past episodes might be Abe McCann feeling that dehumanizing tug and fighting to preserve his sense of perspective. Or Nick Burkert thinking, knowing that he was about to die, but continuing to fight and lead. Or Courtney Salopek, who's always fighting, always striving to recover from her mental and emotional wounds. Those glimmers of strength and character and will are what I find most interesting in doing this show. And today's guest has character in spades. Miles Hennessy served as both an enlisted soldier and a commissioned officer in the army. And he might just be the most humble, selfless person I've ever talked to. All right, imagine you're in my shoes for a moment. You're talking to someone about their military career, and it's pretty simple. Everyone likes to talk about themselves, except for Miles. In every story, every anecdote he told me, he was always giving thanks and credit to the men that he served with. 
both his superiors and his subordinates. Listen for it in the interview. He's truly just a selfless, gracious guy who clearly loves and respects the men that he served with. In a time when social media encourages everyone to be vain and self-centered, it's a real breath of fresh air to talk to guys like Miles. Anyways, you'll hear what I'm talking about. And before we get to the interview, I want to talk about the Independence Fund. They work to support catastrophically wounded veterans and their families in just a myriad of ways. They help to provide all-terrain wheelchairs that aren't covered by the VA and most insurance companies. They advocate for disabled veterans at the state and federal level. And they work to support the caregivers and family members who are supporting those wounded veterans. Another reoccurring theme of the show is how much those spouses, those parents, those children sacrifice to support their family members that are serving. And the Independence Fund works to support those patriots as well. So, if you've got some money to spare, please give a donation to the Independence Fund. They really are doing God's work. You can find a link to their website in the show notes, as always. Okay, let's start the show. My name is Miles Hennessy. I grew up in Camillus, New York, which is about six miles west of the city of Syracuse. I was born and raised there. I am the 11th of 12 children, nice Irish Catholic family. I graduated from uh, West Genesee High School, which is in Camillus, in 1997. I wanted to join the military my whole life. I don't know. It was my father served in the Air Force. Several of his uncles had served in World War One and World War Two. My father is older. My father is 91. So he had his children a little bit later in life. So that's why he served in Korea. I had just always been fascinated and always had respect for the military. I watched every military movie, every military TV show. I always wanted to do it. And my parents really wanted me to go to college first. They supported it, but they they wanted me to finish college first. And I kind of figured, well, why not split the difference? They had the money they wanted me to go. And I'm like, it's only four years. I can still go. You know, the military is not going anywhere. And then what really, really prompted me to join sooner rather than later was September 11th happened, obviously. And that was a a world-changing historical event. You know, I basically, I graduated about seven weeks after September 11th. I took my last final December 18th of 2001. On December 19th, I went down to the recruiter's office and I told them I wanted to enlist in the infantry and I wanted to leave as as soon as possible. So about a month and a half later, I found myself at Fort Benning, Georgia for uh, basic training. That's super commendable. And I think people forget now what it was like in those first days after September 11th. You know, there was that surge of patriotism, and I know enlistment rates went through the roof. I know one thing that was very different from people who joined later on, like myself, all of our you know, our drill instructors, our senior NCOs, people like that had been to Iraq and Afghanistan. You're kind of coming into the that first group of people. You know, I'm assuming none of uh, your drill sergeants had been... To maybe some Gulf War deployments like that. What was kind of the Army culture like that very post-September 11th when you first came in? 
Well, it was, it, as you said, some of our drill sergeants had, you know, the first Gulf War deployments, a couple were in Somalia. We had a few skirmishes between then two. There was, there was Panama and there was, you know, Bosnia, which weren't really combat operations, but they were, they were training to go to war. We didn't, of course, after September 11th, Iraq hadn't happened yet, but Afghanistan was going strong and we knew they were going to need a lot of troops. And as you said, there was this this big surge of, you know, they were taking people that were twice convicted felons because they needed, you know, people just wanted to do their part because of what happened. I would say I probably got, you know, they, they were training us to go to war, but they also have a standard and certain, you know, doctrine and things that they have to teach too. I was fortunate that I had a lot of experienced drill sergeants, but they weren't experienced in, you know, what was going on in Afghanistan. They hadn't seen combat. And at that point, it had been 10 years in the first Gulf War, there wasn't really a lot of combat. I mean, there was the ground war was only, I think, 100 hours. So there was the just the infantry mentality. But it was, you know, just learning the basics. We we obviously we did the rifle range. We did some ruck marching. We did, you know, the basics, learning how to read maps, things of that nature. And I wound up after I, you know, after I, I graduated in, I want to say, May of 2002 is when I completed basic training. And then I shipped off in July of 2002, I shipped off to Schweinfurt, Germany, which was incredible. Germany was incredible. I loved Germany. And I was, we were there for about a year. And then in, in 2003, we got uh, orders to deploy to Iraq in 2004 and 2005. We didn't get much of the Afghanistan part because we were mechanized infantry unit. But we still, you know, we went to Iraq and we went to, we did, at that point, we did have some NCOs that had come from the 101st and the 82nd that joined our, our company and our battalion later that had been to Afghanistan. And it was definitely a different change of pace than most people are used to. Just to circle back for a second, I, I don't know that we've had anyone on the show who is stationed in Germany. Do you, do you have any fun experiences or good memories from Germany that you could share real quick? Absolutely. I, I was a little hesitant at first just because it's, you know, it's, I had traveled before I'd been, you know, out of the country on different like trips with school and I was in the Boy Scouts. I went to the World Jamboree and stuff when I was younger. So, and those were both in Europe. I was a history major in college and I always loved military history. So Germany, of course, you know, we all know World War One, World War Two. It was, it was so, you know, kind of humbling to see, like, I went to visit, uh, Eagle's Nest, which was Hitler's mountain hideout in, in Germany, in Munchen. You know, the first thing I did when I went to Germany was I bought a car. And every three or four day weekend or every leave, I just got in the car and I drove. I was actually able, the most humbling experience I had for being stationed in, in Germany was I actually went to Normandy Beach. And I got to see all the monuments and the barricades. And, and that was it was quite touching and quite humbling, you know, as a somebody who likes military history and was a history major of just seeing how that went down and what went down there and just being being humbled by standing there and knowing what those guys went through. Because a lot of people don't understand that, you know, that had to work. I mean, if that didn't work, the war probably would have went on for a lot longer and we may not have been successful. And Germany was great. Of course, you know, you always hear all the stories of there's two people that get stationed overseas. There's the people who sit in their their barracks room every weekend and get drunk and play Xbox and say the army sucks and Europe sucks. And then there's the people like me who got out and traveled and went out and did stuff. And, you know, I, I would go back to Europe. It's definitely something I would like to maybe if I 
could afford it, maybe get a place there and go there for the summers or go there for, you know, certain periods of time. But I love Germany. I got to visit most of the countries in Germany, like I said, because when I bought the car, I would go to France or I'd go to Portugal or Spain or, and I actually met before we do get too far into the Iraq, I did actually meet a Norwegian soldier in Iraq. And when I got state or when I redeployed back to Germany, I went up to Norway to visit him and him and his family welcomed me into their lives. And then the next year when I went back home, he came to New York where I'm from and I went down to visit them. And ever since then, you know, we've become lifelong friends now. And I'm planning another trip to uh, Norway this coming year, provided, you know, COVID doesn't interfere with that. So it was it was definitely a great experience that I am, am very fortunate and blessed to have have had. That's incredible. You know, it's easy to understand the, the camaraderie between guys in your squad and your platoon, stuff like that, what kind of international friendships. That's that's awesome, especially over so many years. I'm, I'm glad to hear that, you know, you guys have kept in touch all this time. That's super cool. The being stationed in Germany, you know, there's a lot of bases in Spain, in Italy, and Japan, Okinawa. You know, there's a lot of cool travel opportunities that people, you know, sometimes do in the military. Even Hawaii, you know, tons of sailors, airmen, soldiers, Marines stationed out there. Just for the listeners who might not be familiar, you know, it's not, it's not all going to Iraq and Afghanistan. But speaking of that, so it's 2004, you said, and you're getting ready to deploy. Before you deployed, did you guys have a clear mission set? Because I know early on in the war there, it, it wasn't as clear with what kind of the DOD wanted to do. You know, the, the U.S. government was a little shaky on how they wanted the mission to proceed. So what were you guys going over there to do? Well, okay, there was a lot of uncertainty in my unit because we were a mechanized unit. And, you know, they had already had... The, the initial units that always deploy, obviously, are, you know, they're the special forces units. Then they're the, the light units, like the 10th Mountain, the, the 25th Tropic Lightning out of Hawaii. And then, of course, the 82nd and the 101st Airborne Divisions. They're always the first ones to go because they have the airborne capabilities. They have the, you know, the quick fighter and light infantry response, you know, units. I was actually initially when I got there. Uh, keep in mind, I enlisted. I enlisted right out of college. I did graduate college. I did finish my degree. So I went in as an E4, uh, a specialist, and I was originally assigned as the unit armor. So I I wasn't really sure what my role was going to be there, but I was also the uh, the commanding officer's RTO. You know, I carried the radio for him because for some reason they always stick that detail with the college guy. So anyway, but before about two or three months before I did end up getting transferred to a line platoon, we were training for basically uh, what's called mount military operations and urbanized terrain, clearing buildings, clearing houses. I don't think like you said, we didn't really have a clear mission set other than, you know, it was to kill or capture any anti-coalition forces and IED makers. Of course, that still remained the biggest threat were the, the roadside bombs. We had been in sector. We deployed in February. We actually were boots on the ground in Iraq, and I think we had just taken over from the 4th Infantry Division, actually done the transfer of authority. We had been in about uh, two and a half weeks, and we lost Captain Jonathan Kurth, who was the Bravo Company commander, and Specialist Jason Ford, who was his driver, to a roadside bomb attack. And we had been there literally like three days, and that's quite you know, something that – that's when, you know, if you didn't think it was real <laughs> – well, now you know it's real. So 
it was quite emotional. It was also quite, you know, quite the wake up call that, hey, it, we're, we're in this now. Yeah, it's it's sometimes hard to understand what you're going to be facing until you actually see it. I think it's in that book, The Red Badge of Courage, they call it seeing the elephant. You know, back in the Civil War era, no one had really seen elephants. You're not quite sure how you'll react until you do see combat. And even if you've trained for years and years and years, you know, it's hard, it's scary. You know, the, the beginnings of a deployment are definitely a strange time. Did you guys have armored vehicles at this point, or was it still kind of soft skin, or what, what were you guys working with there? We did have up-armored vehicles. We also had, as I said, we were a mechanized infantry unit so we did have our bradleys as well i do want to clear a couple of things up too is you know as far as we all know the the story of the the soldier who asked donald Rumsfeld about the you know he said you go to war with the army you have i forget the exact quote but he was talking about the compromised ballistic glass and things they're they're not everything that you always hear like that is completely true he had a legitimate concern it was just it was kind of spun around by the media that you know, we had up armor Humvees. I felt safe. I felt we had all the resources that we needed. And of course, you know, technology advances and things, there there are things that are done that people do to get contracts. I don't know if you're familiar with the the 3M earplug lawsuits that are going on now, but I'm I'm involved in that now because they intentionally manipulated the data to get the contracts and they made the earplugs too short so they didn't expand properly. And a lot of veterans and soldiers like myself now have permanent hearing issues so there's there's a big lawsuit involved with that so you can't you know the the media helped to twist things because a lot of people were against the war because as you said a lot of people didn't really understand what we were doing there the whole weapons of mass destruction thing was was kind of played out i i just want to say this you know i went on several missions both my first tour as an enlisted soldier and then my second tour is both a platoon leader and an assistant operations officer. Every mission that I went on, we either found the weapons or we found the components to make them if you put them together. So they were there. It was just twisted by the media to make it look because of they didn't support the war and didn't, you know, and didn't like there was a lot of hatred there for President Bush at the time. But, you know, they, they were there and we were there to do that mission for America. And if nothing else, if you want to look at it, why we were there, we ridded the world of one of the most evil and brutal dictators in the history of the world. And that alone made it worth, to me, made it worth it. Absolutely. And I think, I think you're bringing up a perfect point here. And it's a big reason that, you know, I'm trying to do this show is as time went on, they're just kind of congealed into these narratives. They're like, you know, this is what happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. But that's not really how anything is, you know. I heard War once described as like, you know, those those pieces of artwork, a mosaic, where it's like lots of different little tiles that make up one big kind of picture. There's a million different stories. And so like you're you're pointing out absolutely right. You know, there were definitely units that had everything they needed. You know, maybe there's one unit that didn't, and that becomes the new story then, right? Now all of a sudden this one soldier's story it gets blown up. That becomes the official narrative, even if that wasn't true 95% of the time. Do you know what I'm saying? So that's why I think oh, yes, having yes. people in to kind of correct the record and be like, no, this is what I saw. This is what we were dealing with. That's why I think this is so important. Right. No, and I agree. And, and well, we were stationed in Tikrit, Iraq. We had taken over uh, one of Saddam Hussein's uh, palaces. That was kind of our, our barracks and our living area. Our day-to-day 
operations by the time we got there is, you know, it'd be quiet for three or four days in a row. And then something would happen. There'd be like an IED attack, maybe some sporadic gunfire, a battle. Then it'd be quiet for three or four more days. That was kind of the pattern in the cycle. Our day-to-day activities were we would do presence patrols, which would be a platoon or a squad kind of going through the neighborhood. We would maybe search some houses randomly, just kind of go into the town. They have their little bazaars, which are like, they're kind of like a farmer's market. We would kind of talk to the locals, see what we could help out doing. We did a lot of work with, you know, the Iraqi police and Iraqi school children trying to help them out. You know, they're, they're a very poor country. We would try to help them out with school supplies and kind of just draw attention to their different plights and things. But it was mainly a lot of just patrolling, presence patrols. You know, if we got credible intelligence of an IED maker or, or something like that, we would go and, you know, kind of at least talk to them or investigate. And a lot of the intelligence we got that were just were neighborly uh, disputes. You know, it, he would take some cigarettes from his neighbor's store and not pay. So the neighbor would come up and say, well, he's making bombs. Well, of course, you know, we have to act on that. And sometimes there's nothing to it. And sometimes, you know, it ends up being true. And we got a bad guy off the street. So. Right. At this point, a lot of the police forces were kind of gone. The judicial system's kind of patchy, depending on where you were in country. So a lot of people viewed the Americans as the police as the judicial system and which definitely puts you know day-to-day soldiers and marines in a weird spot when it's you know we saw a lot of property disputes people would be like oh you know i left town and now there's people living in my house and you go talk to the person in the house they'd be like i've lived here for 20 years and, you know it's it's who can say you know it's right it's a weird it's a weird situation to be you know like a 20 something and having to adjudicate property law and you know with people who don't speak your language did you did you enjoy kind of interacting with the people like that and going to the bazaars and things like that i i did enjoy interacting with them because it's interesting to see that other their culture and their way of life the the problem that i know myself and a lot of soldiers that i you know served with and that i deployed with the the problem is is you know you can't trust them even the kids you know you could be down there talking to them and, and trying to find out, you know, we're playing soccer with the kids or handing out candy. And then three hours later, as it starts to get dark, you see them on the side of the road, you know, planting a roadside bomb or, or you know, firing a, a rocket at you. So you, you can't trust them and you got to be very careful what you say, because if you say, hey, we're going to have two more patrols down here. Well, lo and behold, they're getting on their phone and they're calling up, you know, Baghdad Bob there, who's going to be there to set up an ambush and. An innocent little remark like that is, and now, you know, you put your fellow troops in danger. So. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of counter intel work that you have to maintain, you know, keep keep your OPSEC tight. Correct me if I'm wrong, I, I might be misremembering this. Is Tikrit where Saddam Hussein was from? Yes, that's where he was born. The unit that we had relieved, the 4th Infantry Division, they were actually there when we captured him. So it was it was near, we were near where he was captured in the spider hole. Okay, that's that was actually going to be my follow-on question there. Yeah. Was that did his trial or anything take place when you guys were there? Was that, you know, the Saddam trial and execution was that an issue for you guys at all? I believe that happened after we had already redeployed because I believe that was the following year later in 2005. Okay. 
Gotcha. Uh, unless there's any other, you know, interesting stories or anything that you'd like to talk about from this deployment, do you want to get into becoming an officer and then kind of, you know, how that career track kind of is different? You know, not a lot of people see both sides of the army like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I do just want to say this, though, before we actually switch topics. You know, I did four and a half years enlisted and I served with, you know, the greatest group of men in the his- that God ever created on the history of this earth. And I love every single one of them. You know, we, we did lose some brothers. I want to say a shout out to, you know, Michael Becker and uh, Specialist Quaylar, who, you know, were both both killed in action while we were deployed. I learned from some great NCOs who really, really ended up helping me to, you know, become a good officer. But, you know, and Michael Becker left behind. He had just been married and, and you know, he had a baby that was born after his passing. I wouldn't trade it in for the world. And, you know, I still keep in touch with a lot of them. I've, I've lost some since we got back to different things. You know, one, some to drug addiction, which is a, a horrible thing, which, you know, sometimes happens as a result of PTSD and, and other things. But I, you know, I, I just want to give a shout out to everybody who I serve from Charlie Company 118 Infantry, which was my first unit. And uh, I'm sure some of them may listen to it, may listen to this. You guys are great. I love every single one of you. I'm sorry so, about those brothers that you lost there. You know, a lot of us have well, been there. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's hard. It is. Could we actually, could we take a, a break? Yeah. Okay. So I think before the break, you were asking me about my career into becoming an officer, correct? Yeah. Could you kind of walk us through, you know, how does that work? You know, is it, I assume there's some kind of process. It's the military, obviously there's a process, but you know, what, what does that look like? How, how was it for you? Things like that. Sure. Absolutely. I returned, we redeployed, my unit redeployed from Iraq in February of 2005. And I PCS, which is a permanent change of station, meaning I left Germany in July of 2005. And I got stationed at, I had re-enlisted while I was deployed. I had re-enlisted to do another three years. And I picked uh, Fort Hood, Texas as my duty station. So I arrived at Fort Hood, Texas in July of 2005. And I was still uh, same. I was still, I did have my combat infantryman's badge and a couple of medals from the deployment. It was right about that time that my company first sergeant knew I was kind of flirting with being an officer. He knew I had college. He uh, knew it was something I wanted to look into. And what had happened was uh, the division commander, I was assigned to the 1st Cavalry Division. The division commander was uh, Major General Peter W. Corelli, who later went on to become the Army uh, Vice Chief of Staff. He had a program where he wanted one person from every company who was eligible to submit a green to gold, which is an ROTC packet, an OCS packet, and a warrant packet. He said, even if you decide not to go, he wanted, you know, one soldier each to submit the packets from the company. And so my first sergeant talked to me about it. And, you know, he said, you know, just submit the packet. And if you decide not to go, you don't have to go. And so I did everything for it. I submitted the packet and lo and behold, I got selected. And I thought about it and I said, you know, but there's obviously a quite a different or significant financial gain between, you know, an E4 and an O2. So I decided to go. So in May of 2006, I went back to Fort Benning, Georgia, and I went to a 90-day uh, officer candidate school. There are four ways in the Army you can become an officer. One is obviously 
uh, West Point, which I wasn't anywhere near smart enough to ever get admitted there. So the other is uh, ROTC, which is uh, green to gold is different. Green to gold is enlisted soldiers who get an ROTC scholarship and then go to college. However, you can get an ROTC scholarship without being prior enlisted. The third way is Officer Candidate School or OCS, which from this point going forward, I'm going to call it OCS just because Officer Candidate School takes too long to say. And then there is a direct commission, which you usually only see in cases of doctors or lawyers or psychologists. So I, in May of 2006, I went to a 90-day Officer Candidate School program, which was a lot of basically just doing the infantry battle drills from the, the field manual 7-8, which is the, the Army's book of basically the infantry manual. We got a lot of classes in military history, communication. There were a lot of field problems, basically learning how to be an officer and what an officer does. And this is not infantry specific. I had chosen to become an infantry officer. However, any officer... You know, you could be a signal officer, you could be a, a JAG officer, you could be a tank officer. They all go to officer candidate school. It's all one one course. They're, it, they're not, you know, MOS or branch specific. So in August, August 23rd of 2006, I graduated officer candidate school and got commissioned as a second lieutenant in the infantry. My next school after that was I actually had gone to um, airborne school, which is uh, three weeks down in Fort Benning, Georgia, which is actually pretty cool it's you know three weeks of training and it's a lot of fun but it's also very scary at the end especially if you've never done any kind of skydiving or anything so it was a quite a unique experience and so after that i went to through a 16-week program called iobc which stands for the infantry officers basic course this is where you really learn how to become specifically an infantry officer they put a lot of emphasis on running you know the five paragraph op order leading a platoon, briefing the op order, a lot of the battle drills and the different missions where they took turns. Everybody who goes through the course is a lieutenant at that point. We're all assigned to different units. And this is also, this is National Guard and active duty officers all going through this course. So there's no separate course for a National Guard officer or an active duty officer. That was one of the greatest experience. Like I said, we also had some international um, officers there. We had a couple of soldiers from Lebanon, couple from Nepal, a couple from the former Soviet Union, a couple from Greece. I'm still very good friends with them too. They all went through our course, which is a big deal for them. It's a, it's a very prestigious opportunity for them as well. So after 16 weeks, I did, unfortunately, I did get hurt the first time I went through it. So I had to start the course over. We call it getting recycled. But you know, that sometimes happens. I was still able to finish. So the following year in 2007, now by this time too, it's important, I wanted to put this out there. I had actually met somebody at, uh, well, I was stationed at Fort Hood and um, I ended up getting married uh, shortly after I, or before I graduated from the infantry officer's basic course. And so I ended up getting orders to go to uh, Fort Lewis, Washington. So I got out there around, I wanna say July or August of 2007. And the unit I was assigned to was uh, 138 Infantry under the command of one of the greatest officers I've ever had the privilege and honor to serve with, a man by the name of Lieutenant Colonel Ricardo Love, who really uh, went out of his way to show me how to be a good officer. I'm very grateful to what he did. He was uh, 
I won't go into all the details of this, but my wife, I found out later and discovered later, she had a pretty significant issue with alcohol. And we also, by this time, my, my daughter was born in December of 2007 in the middle of my deployment. So that, of course, that's a, that's a whole new uh, ball game and uh, arena there. But within about a month after I was arriving, I you know, got orders to deploy to Iraq. And so this, by this time, a major develop or a major shift had taken place. Basically, as, as you had mentioned, as far as the war goes, a major shift had taken place from combat operations to redevelopment programs. So what we were doing was just a lot of basic security for they had brought in contractors that started helping, you know, to repair the plumbing. They had brought in some medical doctors to help with, you know, the doctors that were there, doctors without borders, brought in civilian contractors to help rebuild bridges, a lot of, you know, people to come in and help train the Iraqi police. So, yes, there was still a threat, but it was not, you know, the, the combat operations as, as they were, you know, previously in 2004 or during the initial invasion. I was assigned as a, a platoon leader initially. I held a platoon for about three to four months. A lot of it was the same. There were presence patrols. They were meeting up with um, what we call Mukhtars, which are basically their, their local kind of spiritual and religious leaders. And we would basically find out what are the major problems they're facing or are there people getting their food? Is the plumbing working? And then my job would kind of be to get with the command, pass these issues on, and we would try and get uh, some resolution, get a team of engineers out there to help repair the, the pipes or, or things of that nature. As well as also, of course, there's always the threat of IEDs. I mean, usually the people that plant the roadside bombs aren't even really bad guys. It's somebody comes up to them and says, hey, I'll give you $5 to go put this in on the side of the road. And that $5 to them is a lot of money. Um, I do want to say a couple of things as far as the redevelopment programs. I was fortunate. I also worked directly with the Iraqi police out there. And I had a couple of friends back here who were in law enforcement. And I, I contacted them and they were actually able to get some old bulletproof vests and police equipment that were in the basement of the police station. And they sent them to me over there and I gave them to the Iraqi police. And they were just so grateful you know, to have because I mean, they're, they're a different branch. They don't have the, the government money and the support that we do. So they were very, very grateful and, and things like that, you know, go and notice because like I said, by this time, the war was very unpopular and, and a lot of those stories get overlooked just because it doesn't you know fit what they want people to think. That's awesome that you were able to set that up with your buddies. Obviously, in terms of picking order for supplies, the Iraqi police were at the bottom of a pretty tall totem pole. I was wondering, if, how did it compare being a specialist on your first appointment with being you know a, a lieutenant on your second one? Obviously, very different you know, tasks that you were doing, but kind of like mentally, did you have to make a transition being an officer? Was that, was that difficult coming from an enlisted background? Okay. Well, the, the general cliche or the general saying, at least in the army is the best officers are prior enlisted. And I, I believe that to this day, but as you had said, yeah, it is, it is quite the transition because, you know, I was actually promoted to sergeant before I went to OCS like a month before. But of course, you learn all the, you know, the, the NCOs and the enlisted, they, they pretty much run the army. The NCOs are usually put in charge. The officers are kind of off in the background. My job now is to, to carry out the orders and to make sure that my NCOs are doing that. And it, 
I did have a difficult time at first, but I was fortunate that, you know, my, my platoon sergeant, a guy by the name of Sergeant Shane Gettle, and my three of my squad leaders, you know, Sergeant Bulin and Sergeant Roberts, they were there to help me. And, you know, when I when I fell down, they were there to help pick me up and, and brush me off. And, you know, they my NCOs and my soldiers made me a good platoon leader. So, I mean, yes, it was difficult, but once I made it, it was like, hey, I got it. We got it. Let's go do our thing. And, you know, we had a really good time. I fortunately, during my stint, I did not lose one single soldier and only had two wounded. So I, I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, that's got to be an incredible feeling. You know, even, you know, any any kind of deployment, you know, knuckleheads get hurt doing anything, let alone a combat deployment to Iraq. So, you know, kudos to you and, you know, your squad leaders, your platoon sergeant. That's real, that's quite an achievement. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, my, my second question about your for your second deployment here, working with kind of the reconstruction teams, do you have any maybe anecdotes or stories about some of the projects that you did? I know you're talking about like maybe working with plumbers and stuff, but did you do any any bigger projects or anything like that? Yes, we did. We did basically, like I said, we were security for what was called the PRT, which was the Provisional Reconstruction Team. And they actually took it upon themselves to rebuild uh, actually almost an entire school. We got a lot of funding from Tom Benson, who at the time he was, he used to own the New Orleans Saints. He, he passed away, I think about two years ago, but he, uh, he had heard of the plight of some soldiers who had come home from a previous deployment and went to a Saints game and, you know, kind of told them about the, the failing status there in the, the crumbling buildings and everything. And so he wanted to donate some money to help, you know, kind of rebuild these schools and to get things up and running there because obviously he cared about the troops, but when it when it got to the point where it was looking like, you know, with the surge happened and it was going to be year on, year off, it's like, well, the sooner we can get this rebuilt and get the Iraqi people back on their feet and self-sufficient, you know, the sooner we get to go home. And I think he understood that and he, for like, pardon the pun, but he was able to rally some of the troops and we had a lot of senators that came to visit, but they, they rebuilt a, a school. I was stationed the second time I was in a place called Bakuba, which is uh, northeast of Baghdad, probably, I want to give the exact amount, but it was probably a good three to four hours away, northeast of Baghdad. And, uh, you know, that was just a, a big deal to them. And I know, I do want to say my mom at the time, she, she was great. My mom uh, used to be an elementary school teacher and I had sent her an email and she kind of rallied the troops, got people together from the church and they, they sent in all kinds of, you know, school supplies, notebooks, pens, paper, you know, just learning like all the things we would use, like textbooks, things of that nature. And, you know, I distributed them along with several of my soldiers and, you know, I, we kind of took that upon to be our, our personal project along with the PRT to, you know, rebuild that school and get them up and running. Cause that really is the key to, like I said, getting them back on their feet and getting them self-sufficient. Absolutely. That's something I had forgotten about until you just kind of mentioned that kids were always asking for pencils and papers. Schools can't afford it. You know, they don't have any, but how can you, you know, you can't be a student without practicing writing, you know, your math, things like that. That's, that's awesome that you guys were able to do that and that, you know, your mom and I feel like tons of American citizens put in care packages, knit socks, you know, school supplies, snacks, food, medical supplies, and send it over for Iraqis and Afghanis. 
And, you know, those those small acts of sacrifice, those police officers who were able to procure supplies for the Iraqi police, you know, really a lot of Americans outside the military really stepped up to contribute and try and turn the tide. And I think I think that's something that gets forgotten. But, you know, all of those little sacrifices absolutely added up. So it's nice to nice to hear that remembered. Thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. And I mean, and like I said, you know, I just I look at, you know, when I came home to when I came home from the first time and even the second time, you know, we had a big banner and my mom had this kind of welcome home party. And it's, you know, I can't even fathom what the guys coming back from Vietnam must have gone through. And, you know, you can be against the war and still support the troops. And that's I just want to give a shout out to every single Vietnam veteran out there for, you know, what you went through and what you did is nothing compared to what I did. And those guys really never got their due. And, and that's just wrong. And we, we owe it to them. You know, they, they stepped up and served when nobody else wanted to. And whether you agree with the war or, or not, you know, they deserve your respect. I mean, there were several people that didn't go or, or dodged the draft or went to Canada. And, you know, when your country calls, you go. That's, one area that we certainly had it a lot easier, a lot more supportive home to come home to. Speaking of giving shout-outs, uh, you, you had sent me on a link earlier to an absolutely amazing organization that you'd like to give a shout-out to. Do you want to talk about them for a little bit here? Yes. I, I want to give a shout-out to an organization called the Independence Fund. It was started, I believe it was started in 2007 by the wife of an amputee veteran. What the Independence Fund does is it raises money to provide all-terrain track wheelchairs to amputee veterans. These wheelchairs cost anywhere from fifteen to thirty-five thousand dollars a piece, and you know the VA doesn't pay for them because obviously we know all the problems that the VA and the healthcare system has. But they've raised to to this day they've raised I believe they've been able to provide over. 30,000 veterans, amputee veterans with these all-terrain track wheelchairs. And I know Bill O'Reilly from Fox, when he was on Fox News, he took that under his wing. I also, too, do want to give a shout out to my college fraternity, Theta Chi. I actually had a soldier who I was trying to raise the money for. He was a, a friend of mine when I was enlisted. He was a soldier who became an amputee due to a roadside bomb attack. And then when I heard about his case, and I knew he, he came from, you know, limited means and everything. And I, I met his family and I had posted something about the independence fund on my fraternity's Facebook page and all the different chapters, you know, came to, and they started raising money. We eventually got enough to, to get him one of these all-terrain track wheelchairs in the name of Theta Chi. And we've had several famous, we have several famous alumni of my fraternity. Steven Spielberg is a member of, is an alumni of my fraternity, Theta Chi. And also Phil Bosser, the country music singer, who he actually donated a million dollars to the Independence Fund after I sort of, you know, rallied the troops and they came and he looked into it. It is an incredible organization. It is an organization that I think, you know, not everybody can afford to donate a thousand or, or 25,000 or a million dollars, but even if you donate $5, every little bit helps. It's an organization that I still will continue to support. And it absolutely is one of the better veterans charities out there. There were a lot of problems, as I'm sure you're aware of, with you know Wounded Warrior Project, which I think is in the process of being fixed, but it's still kind of a mess. I, I just can't say enough about that organization and what they do, because it actually, it, it 
gives these amputee veterans, you know, basically their lives back and their freedom and their mobility. And it does so much for their morale. That sounds like an absolutely wonderful organization. I'm so glad to hear that you were able to raise so much money for a friend and that, you know, famous people, people with some real clout behind them are stepping in there to help, you know, get these heroes the mobility solutions that they need. So we'll absolutely have a link to them in the show notes. I'll try and get them as much promotion as we can, because that's, yeah, absolutely doing God's work on that one. That's tremendous. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? You know, if you want to circle back to anything, give any other shout outs or thank yous, anything like that? Yeah, there's a, it, like I said, it, it was an honor and a privilege for me to serve. It was something I wanted to do my whole life. It's something I think everybody should do. I did, unfortunately, just to, to kind of kind of wrap things up as far as my career goes. I was discharged in 2009, obviously under Barack Obama. Everybody knows we had the, the sequestration. I unfortunately became a victim of that. But at the time, you know, I, I got to serve. I've done more than most people. I, I don't regret it. Well, I don't agree with, you know, the sequestration and them getting rid of some of the people that they did. I understand why I wasn't done. I was a soldier. I do still continue to serve in a lot of states have a, it's an all volunteer force, but it's called, you know, the state defense force. I'm transitioning now into that. They help out with a lot of, you know, disaster relief and things of that nature in their local states, but they are, you know, kind of a branch of the military. That's something that the people want to serve. Um, but don't want to do the actual military, they can look into, I think there's 39 or 40 states that have a state defense force. I'm in New York, so mine's called the New York Guard. That's a wonderful organization as well. They're right there on the front line. They, they obviously don't deploy and carry guns, but you know, when there's a hurricane or a natural disaster, they're the ones right there on the front lines that are that are there along with the National Guard. I do want to say, you know, obviously I, I have to give a shout out to not only my fraternity, Theta Chi fraternity, but also my family, my mother and father for supporting my dream of serving in the military. I have, as I stated before, I'm, I'm the 11th of 12 children. So to all of my brothers and sisters who sent me care packages or even just, you know, phone cards or just even, you know, just write me letters. Mel makes all the difference in the world when you're over there. It's a, it's a big morale booster. And also to uh, my daughter, Amber. She's uh, 13 years old. She's with her grandmother now in Payson, Arizona. But I just wanted to say that, you know, Amber, I love you to death. I'm going to be out there for, to, to see you again real soon. You're the light of my life. And, you know, I got to come home for her to be born in the middle of the deployment. But, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't trade it in for the world. I wouldn't trade my life in for the world. And just knowing that I helped to make my daughter's life and, and her adulthood safe, everything that happened to me uh, worth it. Thanks for sharing, opening up. Thanks again for talking to me, Miles. I really appreciate it. You're a cool guy. All right. Well, thank you. All right. I want to thank Miles for speaking with me. And again, I want to thank him for his humility and just his depth of character. He's such a selfless guy and is an absolute credit to both his family and our country. Remember, if you can swing it, please donate to the Independence Fund and help support wounded veterans and their families. Okay, that's all for today. I'll see you next time.